0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 12th chapter. We're going to pick up the reading in verse 13 and continue to verse 17. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. And they came and said to Him, Teacher, we know that You are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we've heard now your word read in the presence of your people with your spirit with us, we simply would ask now as we spend some time expounding on this word that you would be mindful of every soul in this room That you would know what it is that we need. You would come now through this word and minister to us. That you would keep the evil one even from this place. That the birds of the air might not pluck out that seed. Or the cares of the world might not choke it out. But that Lord that which you have for us would be rooted firmly, deeply in our hearts. That it would root this morning. And that ultimately it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we would ask that you most of all, through what takes place in all of this service and even now as we give attention to your word, that it would bring glory to Jesus Christ. It's him who we set our eyes and our hearts toward even now. Would you come and present him before us through the power of the Spirit and this word with a portrait that's more believable and beautiful than ever before. Come now and hear this prayer and answer it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the phrase that love is a tie that binds. We might even argue that, at least some have, that love is the tie uh, that binds. And that's certainly true, isn't it? Uh, Love is what brings a lot of you here in this room together today. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ, love for the church, love for God's people. As I look out, I see a number of couples in our midst. I'm you know, like to suggest that love brought you together, and maybe love is keeping you together as you're sitting there in those pews. That's probably true with uh, friendships and, and, and neighbors who um, live to your left and to your right, and, and um, well, many others in our lives. Love is indeed the tie that, that binds. But love is not the only tie that binds. In fact, if we're honest, hate binds people together too. I remember reading a few years ago an article in the New York Magazine written by Paul Kicks about Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Some of you will know that name because you know your American political history very well. She was, of course, as you hear that word, Roosevelt. She was the oldest daughter of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, she married a senator, Nicholas Longworth, who was actually a um, a Speaker of the House. I think it was in the 60s. And they, too, had a pretty up-and-down married life. The love that drew them together was one that had a hard time keeping them together. Some of us know that story. She, however, was a very interesting character. Um, one whose life is, well, marked by um, mystery and intrigue and and um, well, uh, some controversy of usually her own making. Uh, she early on would follow the politics, for instance, of her uh, of her father uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and then uh, her husband, who 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 she uh, in her early days was a bit tenuous with with regards to politics. She would later kind of follow him uh, in politics. They ran on different tickets. You might have heard of these tickets: Republican and and Democrat. Um, she found herself at times on, on the wrong side of, of those discussions, but what was interesting about, uh, about Alice Roosevelt Longworth was that she was, she was one who managed to keep her relationships uh, across the aisle, so to speak. Um, she was friends with the Kennedys, but um, uh, friends with LBJ as well, and, and then was a supporter of Nixon, and, and, and yet not all of those characters have always gotten along. And somehow or another, she managed to... Keep the tie that binds, so to speak, across these lines, and was accepted in Washington's a polite company up on both sides of, uh, of the aisle. And she was asked one time by an interviewer what it was, what was her secret, like, what's the recipe to maintain that kind of bipartisanship uh, relationship? And, and very interestingly, the the biographer notes this that she, well, she had this motto embroidered on one of her sofa pillows. It's a very interesting. Very interesting motto to live by. Here was her motto. If you don't have something good to say about someone, well, come and sit with me for a while. <laughs> she actually loved to join people in their mutual dislike for each other. Um, she shared mutual dislike, apparently, for just about everybody. And somehow or another managed to maintain community in the midst of that dislike. Her Shared enemies or her, her shared dislikes was the basis of a lot of her friendships. Now, oh, it's true, isn't it? that sometimes a common enemy can make for very unusual alliances? People who wouldn't otherwise get along, wouldn't we want to be seen together at the dinner table, so to speak, all of a sudden have a peculiar partnership when they have a common enemy. Such is really the case here in, well, March chapter twelve. In today's text, two very unlikely bedfellows. You caught them there at the beginning in verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They have come together because they have a common enemy, and you could probably guess his name. His name is Jesus Christ. He's been the enemy of these religious leaders and these uh, politicians there in Rome since, well, well, since the beginning, really, of the Gospel of Mark, especially since the advent of Jesus' ministry. And these two parties, well, well, they're really different. I'm going to paint just very broadly so it can register for you. These Pharisees, well, they're 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 right-wing conservative types. They're, they're Jewish nationalists. They've been anxiously anticipating the fall of Rome and the coming Messiah king who will put Rome in its place. The Herodians, on the other hand, are, well, let's just say they're they're left-leaning. Uh, they, they've submitted, they've bowed the knee to, well, well to Rome. You hear the word Herod in the Herodians, don't you? Uh, they're, they're sympathizers with the whole of the empire. They, they love the values of the empire, not the uniquenesses of Jewish religion that has followed Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and, and kept the traditions of the temple and the tabernacle like the Jews. No, no, no. He, he held, the Herodians held, to the syncretistic values of the of the Roman Empire. And if that word syncretistic doesn't ring a bell, it simply means that Rome, when they conquered you, didn't try to obliterate everything you believed or the religion that you held to. They just kind of absorbed it into their empire and kind of knighted you as a, Rome, as, a, as a Roman citizen. But you can keep, you know, acting like a Jew or as long as you pay your taxes. We don't really care too much what you do as long as you don't cause us trouble. And we can continue to get from you what we need. We're going to let you live and let live a bit, as it relates to some of these other matters. These were the Herodians. Now, Why did they both hate Jesus? That may be the question we want to we ask. Why did they both hate Jesus? Well, the Pharisees hated Jesus because he had been upending their religious authority since the beginning of his ministry. Their aspirations to be on top, to call the shots, to draw the crowds. He had cut that in half, if not better. In fact, we've already been told in the Gospel of Mark that he, Jesus, didn't preach like the Pharisees or like the the, the religious leaders. He preached as someone with authority. Oh, it must hurt for the Pharisees' ears to hear that. And of course, the Herodians hated Jesus too for, for various different reasons. He was threatening their political alliances. He'd even claimed to be a king. Hmm, no king but Caesar, you understand. So by claiming to be a king, he was a potential threat to the empire. You might smell insurrection if you were a a Herodian and some of the claims of Jesus. Both of these, who disagree on almost nothing, agreed on the fact that Jesus had to go. It was time for Jesus to be destroyed. With his rising popularity, neither group could breathe easy with him on the horizon. Both wanted him dead. And yet, getting Jesus dead had become a very difficult thing. You see, in the previous passage, uh, Jesus had just put the Pharisees and the religious leaders in their place. He had just told a parable, a scathing parable, about them being the, the tenants in the vineyard that God himself owned. And that they had beaten the prophets and thrown them out and even going to kill the son who had come to simply collect his appropriate due as the landowner, as the one who came at God's own behest, the one who owned the vineyard. And they perceived, we're told, at the end of the last passage that Jesus had told this parable against them. They were very sharp. He had told it against them. Yes, he had. Yes, he had told it against them. And it said they tried to arrest him, but they feared the people. Mm. They've been in a difficult place. They've been routed. They've been defeated, but they're not down and out. You know what they did? They went back, as happens in war, and this is a kind of war. They went back in their retreat and they regrouped. And they said, you know, the Herodians want him gone too. Oh, we would never partner with the Herodians. Well, we might partner with the Herodians if... <laughs> if it meant that we could get rid of Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. Notice it's almost missionary language, verse 13. And they sent some of them. They sent. This is the language of mission. Uh, presumably, those who Jesus might not have recognized from the group of the Pharisees and the Herodians, maybe those who even dressed up like commoners, didn't look like religious leaders, didn't look like politicians. You know, there's a look. <laughs> And so they sent these commoners, maybe those kind of wrapped up to come and look like, well, um, uh, interested inquirers. Those who are really seeking the truth. Here they had come to a line against him. And now they figure, as they sat at the table with the Herodians, they came up with the perfect issue and the perfect plot line to be able to destroy Jesus. There was no way out. It was a steel trap in being able to capture him in his talk. Notice that's the phrase. They want him to say too much. And hang himself with his words. That's what they're after in this passage. And now they've got him. Or do they? I want you to think of three things with me as we consider this text. I want you to see the cleverly devised trap that's in this text. I want you to see the trick question that's posed to Jesus. And I want you to see the divine escape. I want you to see the cleverly devised trap. I want you to see the trick question. And I want you to see the the divine escape. Now, we're going to start with this cleverly devised trap, and it's it's obvious here that how they're they're working the angles, isn't it? Listen, they pour it on pretty thick. Look at verse 14. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they don't believe a word that they're saying. In fact, they don't know how true they are about what they're saying. That he is not swayed by appearances. Oh, they will learn that in due time. As they come to Jesus, they come with the age-old trick. You know what it is? Flattery. You can read almost from cover to cover in the book of Proverbs, can't you, about the warnings of the, the flatterer, the one who comes to, as it were, blow positive affirmations and, and wind our direction in order to make us feel all kinds of things, to engender trust, in order that we might play into their hand. These words of what seemingly are high soaring praise and affirmation is really just words to lay a trap, a na- a net. For Jesus to walk right into and get caught in his own talk. I mean, Luke actually says it very well in his retelling of this particular section. He refers to these representatives not as just being sent. He refers to them as spies. Isn't that interesting? That is the language. They've come to spy out Jesus. And it says to persuade them that they are, to persuade him that they're sincere. That's what they've tried to come to do. And what we see is that Jesus is in no way taken in by these flatterers, by these who have come to try to capture him. As we'll see in due time, they well, he returns the favor instead, that he will capture them. But I get ahead of myself. Now, what is flattery? What is flattery? What, what is flattery? I love this from Kent Hughes as I was reading uh, this week on this text. Notice what he says. He says, flattery is the reverse of gossip. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. While flattery involves saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. (laughs) Isn't that absolutely true? It's exactly what we have with these men. They have come to condemn Jesus. They have come to trap him. They are using, we might say, not the frontal attack approach. This is rear flanking. In the war, This is a completely different strategy to take the hill of Jesus. It's a kind of poison in the midst of the sweet words. It's a kind of kindness that's intended to kill. You know, when Jesus is going to speak later to his disciples as he sends them out on mission, you know what he says to them? Behold, I will send you forth as sheep into the midst of wolves. Hmm, that's what mission looks like. There are people out there who are ready and willing and desires to devour you. That's the spirit of the evil one. He is a devourer, the scripture says. That's here with Jesus. We heard in the previous chapter in Mark 11 that they were out to destroy him. They want to consume him. You see, Jesus is the Lamb of God in this text. He is the sheep that that the Lord himself, that God himself has sent. And here are these wolves, these Herodians and these Pharisees. And Jesus has to be on his guard. What he told to his disciples later as he's instructing them is great advice. He says to them, yes, behold, I'll send you forth as sheep into the midst of wolves, but be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You see, as Jesus was training his disciples, he was teaching them that maturity in Christian character draws together a kind of gentleness, affection, harmlessness, with steely discernment and wisdom. It's not a kind of harmlessness that falls into foolishness and naivety. It's a kind of harmlessness that sees through the charade of appearances. It's also not the hard rigidity that comes from distrust. But it's the kind of recognition of human nature. That there's always a mixed bag when we're interacting with each other. Jesus was not swayed by appearances, much to their chagrin. You know, we have to learn this skill as believers, don't we? You know, increasingly, to be quite honest, in the days and times in which we live, there are people, neighbors, and some of you in public sector, some of you CEOs of companies, it would, it would for some out there, it would, they, would, they would love to catch you in a phrase or in a word that could get published and completely misunderstood and abused and twisted. Don't we see that happen pretty regularly today? It's important for us as believers, isn't it, to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We're we're out there to do the work of the Lord, seeking to share the gospel. And we're also like Jesus was constantly not entrusting himself to the crowds. Not causing him to become cynical. But wise. It's different, isn't it? It's different. It's easy to fall into the area of cynicism. Well, we can't trust anybody. Let's be careful. Let's be careful. There are people who are worthy of our trust. And there are people who are not. And there's a spiritual perception that is needed, a discernment that must be forged. And yes, it's usually through some mistakes. But as we walk and mature in the Christian character, we want harmlessness and wisdom to come side by side. An openness and a welcome that doesn't attend naivety and foolishness. Now, Jesus here is showing us how to avoid that snare with this, de- de- this deceitfully, cleverly concocted trap. Now as we look at it in that way, n- notice the trick question secondly. Notice the trick question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) Taxes. Always controversial. The more things have changed, the more they have stayed the same. Right here, my friends. Taxes. Always an issue. It's an issue in the first century. It's an issue in the 21st century when we're talking about taxes. But in this moment, in the first century in Rome, there's a peculiar emotionally charged reality around the subject of taxes. In, in fact, there had, been a, there had been in this, well, just a few decades earlier when Jesus was a boy, there had been a revolt that had happened uh, in Rome around the issue of taxes. Uh, a head tax or a census tax had been put in, in place there in, in Rome. And one by the name of Judas the Galilean had actually led the revolt. Josephus writes about it in his antiquities. Around, uh, his, he's a Jewish historian and he writes here in that first century uh, in the Roman Empire. And, and he notes that there was belief, and I think understandably so, that this head tax, a census tax, was essentially <laughs> this kind of tax. Because you're alive and you are in Rome, we are going to give you this tax. Because you're alive and you're in Rome, we're going to give you this tax. But they called it a tribute to Caesar. So it's a nice way, nice you know, tribute. Think of it as tipping. For all he does for you. you know, think, of it, think of it along those lines. It's a tribute to Caesar. But the word tribute and the way in which the taxes were structured was actually more along the lines of what we would consider a tithe. A kind of religious obligation to Caesar. This was upsetting to the Jews. Significantly. Because at this point, Caesar, actually on the very denarius that we're going to look at here in a second in the text, was a picture of uh, Augustus Caesar, but it was also with the inscription, Son of God, the high priest. All right, so for a Jew, this became very complicated. To pay the tribute, almost a religious kind of tithe in the view of the Roman syncretistic empire, was for them an act potentially of idolatry of serving the Caesar over and against the God of heaven and earth. In fact, there was a split among the Jews between this group called the zealots. You've probably heard of them. Uh, Even among the disciples, we're told, there is a a strain of of zealots. Uh, These completely resisted taxes, the taxes of the head tax, the census tax, and would have nothing to do with it whatsoever. And there were the Pharisees who are here in this text who acquiesced to paying the tax, but were disgruntled and had sort of rationalizations for why it really wasn't an act of worship. And then there were the Herodians who were here in this text. And of course, they on principle thought it was a great idea to to have the head tax because they're uh, aligned with the Roman Empire. Uh, these groups are swirling in the first century and here are the two groups that have gotten together and they've said, you know, we don't agree with you on the tax thing. Yeah, we don't agree with you either on the tax thing. Um, you know, well, we have trouble with Jesus because he's saying things like kingship and and he's, he's upsetting our political life. Well, we have, we have trouble with him him too, I mean, he's upending our religious authority and he's saying all kinds of blasphemous things we've been trying to catch him. Well, if we, if we in our disagreement around taxes, could just really put him in, well, the two horns of a dilemma <laughs> between a rock and a hard place and ask him, is it lawful to pay this tax to Caesar? We've got him. We can work together to accomplish this. Notice if Jesus were to say no... The Herodians could have him arrested as one who was rebelling against Caesar, a kind of insurrectionist. If he said yes, the Pharisees could impute him as a Roman collaborator, someone not worthy of the devotion of a true religious devoted Jew. And they could use that against him. Here is Jesus caught in the midst of this dilemma. This is the trick question. And this is where I want to lead, lastly, to the divine escape. The divine escape... Notice in verse 15, we're told that Jesus, as He hears this question, as He takes it in, He knows the reality of their appearances. Notice verse 15. He saw their hypocrisy. He, he saw them all the way to the bottom. He was actually more true than what they had even said. He wisely does what? He asked for a denarius. Someone give me a denarius. <laughs> now just notice this over and over with Jesus. He got a penetrating question is posed to him, and what does he do? He doesn't answer it. Not directly. Now, he's not like those squirrely politicians in those presidential debates who are simply avoiding the question. No, no, no. Jesus is answering the question, but not in the way that they want him to. He's going to answer the question in a way that's going to completely lead them, by the end of the text, marveling. And what it is that he's communicated. And he says to you, I want you to give me a denarius. A little small coin. Silver coin. Would have had the head of Augustus Caesar on it. Would have had the inscriptions noted earlier. The king, the son of God, and, and uh, the high priest. Uh, that would have been the likeness that would have been seen at that particular time. Now I want you to see Jesus' question. Following asking about the denarius, what's the next question he asks them? Whose image... And inscription is on it. There's two things he asks. Who, who's, whose image and whose inscription? I think that's intentional by Jesus. Not just ask the one, but ask the both. Well, of course, it's Augustus Caesar's image. They actually say that to him. They, they don't really talk so much about the, um, <laughs> the inscription. Because if the religious leaders were there, they would have known, yeah, we don't agree with that. Don't ask us about that. Don't ask us if we use this coin. (laughs) There's a little bit of that going on underneath this text for sure. They don't even talk about the inscription. They just go, yeah, Caesar's image is on it. And notice what Jesus says. Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, what's so remarkable about this response? What does it even mean? What is Jesus trying to get across? Well, in the first place, I want you to see that he's actually upholding the ancient tradition in the first century, and that is the fact that the Caesar, the king, whoever's image is on the coin, that that coin is actually what's actually his. That's actually how the money system worked in the first century, a little bit unlike the money system in our structure. You know, we might have a you know, we might have an image of a former president or someone on our dollar bill or on our, on our coins, but it doesn't mean that this is their dollar bill or their coin. That's my dollar bill, thank you. Um, that's, my, that's my coin. Uh, we're, we have our own money. That's actually not how it was viewed in the first century. Now, these coins were actually Caesar's coins. Uh, Rome ran the economy. He was kind of him to let you borrow his coin. Now he's asking for it back. Jesus is saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is Caesar's coin. There are things on the coin, however, that aren't Caesar's. There are things on that coin that aren't Caesar's. (laughs) There are claims on that coin (laughs) that aren't Caesar's. In fact, see the irony. Caesar, the king, son of God, high priest... And who's holding the coin? The king. The son of God. The high priest. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. The claims on the coin. The the thrust of what the argument of the coin is actually posing is more than the coin's actual connection to Caesar itself. He's claiming more than he actually is. Render to Caesar the things which are his. But the things which are not for Caesar, are not of Caesar, render those things to God. Because at the end of the day, Caesar's image is on the coin, so give it to him. But God's image is on Caesar. God's image is on Caesar. Which means render Caesar to God. God. And if you render Caesar to God, all of what is Caesar's is God's. All of what is Caesar's is God's. Genesis one twenty seven, Man is created in the image of God. In the image of God. You see, Jesus is the one who introduced the language of image. Nobody had asked about image. He says, whose image? Whose likeness? Same language of Genesis one twenty seven. Yes, the image on the coin is Caesar's, but the image on Caesar is God himself. Render Caesar to God. And we're told as they hear this, they begin to realize what it is that he's actually saying. And he has completely routed the trap. We're told that they marveled at his response here in Mark. In fact, we're told in Luke, it's even a little more more satisfying. It says they became silent a hush fell over them they had plotted they had a master plot with exactly the right topic by which to catch him and he played it perfectly these deceptive flattering and crafty inquirers with diabolical intentions moved towards jesus to lay a trap for him and then what did he do he trapped them not with a trick but with the truth. With the truth. You see, that's Jesus' weapon. The truth of the living God, knowing the word, a marveling hush fell over them. There's, there's almost, Is the prophet, I sort of think and hear the prophet, that we tremble at his word. There's a hush that's fell over them. He, is, he has almost, if we can put it this way, brought the end into this moment. What will happen when those at the end of time who come back who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the King of Kings, the Son of God, the High Priest arrives with all of His power and His glory setting up His kingdom. What argument will be given? What more words could we argue that we have aligned ourselves and rendered ourselves to God? No, in that moment we will be hushed. There's almost a breaking in of a prejudgment here upon those who, in disbelief and rejection of Jesus, have sought to trap him. You see, Jesus is actually not just asking us to faithfully pay our taxes, though he is. Jesus is not just asking us to faithfully pay our tithes, so to speak, to give to the Lord, though he is, that's an implication. He's not even asserting that we give our time and our talents to Him, that we find ways to to use our our, our resources towards kingdom ends. He's actually telling us that all of what we are is His. You see, that's the implication of this text. All of what we are. You know, I am bad at this. Are you? I think of it as my time. I'm going to go give a little of my time. What a good man I am. I'm going to go give a little of my money. I'm going to go get, give a little service here, here or there. Jesus is telling us that all of, our, all of our time, all of our money, all of our resources are his. Why? Because the same image that Caesar was made in is the image you're made in. Render to God the things that are his. If his image is on it, it's his. That's what he's telling you in this text. Oh, if this is true, then <laughs> we have a major problem on our hands. <laughs> Maybe some of you, you're already spotting it. You've probably heard the joke that God has made us in his image, and we have tried to return the favor by making him in, in our image, right? That's what we do. We, we've taken the stuff that he's given us, and we've said, No, this is mine. He's just told us in the previous text that we're tenants, <laughs> we're stewards, we're not owners. He's the owner. Jesus is making the same point in a different way in this text. You know, we live lives that are surrendered to self or rendered to self. And this text is calling us to render all of what we are to God. It's not just a portion. It's all of who we are. You know, there's that that principle even in in giving that sometimes is is risen. You know, that... It's not just what it is you're going to give, right? And I'm not even thinking in terms of the church, so don't mishear me this. I'm thinking in terms of, of just charity with regards to the, the being compelled by the grace of God, whether that's to neighbors or wherever that is. It's not just a matter of whether you're going to give. It's, it's how little that you really need for yourself so that you can give as much as you can. Because you've been touched by the Savior, right, Who is, well? Who's given all. Right, I feel it too. It's okay. I don't do this well. We we need work here, right? We need more of my heart captured by the generosity and power of the gospel, of the gift of God to us in Christ Jesus. I don't think that way. I need more of that here. What What I'm sensing in this moment is I need someone who is in the image of God to come on my behalf and fulfill this for me. And he's the one holding this coin in the text. You see, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us that he has come in the exact imprint of God. Same word, image. Made like us, he says, in every way, yet what? Without sin. That's what we need. We need someone who is like unto us, who has all of the the responsibilities as we do to give unto God all that He has due, the fullness of possession, because we have not been able to do this. And it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're not going to be able to do it. Not with a sinful, fallen, broken self that is right now an very unfinished product (laughs) and is very much in work, uh, heading towards, by God's grace, this very reality, the completion of all things, but you do have a Savior who we're told is an advocate. He's an advocate who's been made like you in every way, yet without sin. And here's what we know. He was rendered, well, he was rendered to Caesar. You know, he really was. It was these same religious leaders, and including Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and all of the else, they decided that he, uh, he needed to be destroyed. And He was rendered up to Caesar. Unjustly, through a kangaroo court. He was rendered. He was under Caesar's authority. He was absolutely destroyed. On that cross. And isn't it interesting? Through all their tricks and through all their machinations. To stamp out the son of God, the king, the high priest. They were all just puppets in the hand of God. Because as he was being rendered up to Caesar on Caesar's own command. He was actually being rendered up to God. He had been called to this work from before the foundation of the world. And right now, He is at the right hand of the Father, having been received completely, work finished, all of what we couldn't do done on our behalf, rendered up to God, fully accepted. And you know what He's doing? He's standing and He is interceding for us. He is as our high priest, king, son of God. He is the one right now that gives you passport into the heavenly places. Praise be to his name. How awesome is this glorious gospel? How amazing is this what it is that God is showing us here that this Jesus who was rendered up to Caesar is the one who was ultimately rendered up to God for us. Now the question becomes in right, how then shall we live? You know, are we ever in a place where we can say to a God who gave the whole of himself to us, no, that's too much. (laughs) That's too much. I just just can't go there. And if right now you're saying to yourself, no, it's too much. I can't can't get to a place of of heart and of spirit uh, where I am ready and willing, no matter what it is God calls me to, to deliver it up to him, to render it unto God. Uh, even if it means being sacrificed at, at some point in time under even persecution with regards to Caesar. Could I pay that? Could I, could I render that? Even now, we need His strength, don't we? His grace. For, for those moments may come, right? We don't know when. We don't know how. But we do, as students of history, we do know that those kind of challenges are coming, Right? We don't need to stick our head in the sand. That's just the reality of it. If the master received these things, how will the servants not also? What will be our confidence on that day? It will be that the master has already completed the work. And that we are just filling up the sufferings. What is left in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in our generation and in our time? If we have been loved in this way, how could we not love in that way? That's the point. Not out of shame and guilt, out of incredible abundance, incredible grace. I remember one of my friends, he was a mentor, really, Larry Goff. He was a Baptist student union director in, well, the thriving metropolis of Ellisville, Mississippi, and June's, Jones Junior College, and he became a dear friend of mine. And he was shot down in a, in a plane in, in Vietnam and um, was, was going to die. He was in, he was in the ocean. Uh, and uh, there was no way that he was going to make it. He was clinging to a piece of the aircraft, and um, he got uh, within range where a, actually a Vietnamese boat actually went out and, and got him and captured him, and they let him go free. They let him go free. He was captured by the enemy, and then they let him go free. He would say to us regularly as he was training us, he said, what would I hold back From that Vietnamese who let me go free. If he needed something. What do I owe to him? I owe everything to him. And I would gladly give it. Therein is a portrait of the gospel. Therein is where we live. Right now. Right now in this space. And the Lord is after just a little bit more of your heart and my heart today. Until all is given. Father in heaven, come and meet us here. Know us and know the work that needs to be done. And with the glory of Christ now, continue to meet us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.